morning, everybody. Let's pray together. Father God, you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know our desires. And we ask that you would continue to shape and mold these things into the likeness of your son. Lord, help us today in the reading and the preaching of your word. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us moldable wills and hearts, we ask. Encourage us, convict us, and change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a great inheritance can be a great blessing. And a bad inheritance can be a tremendous burden. Thankfully, we live in a society and in a time where it's hard to get a bad financial inheritance. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of laws in place that protect you from inheriting a tremendous amount of debt from your parents or from your grandparents. But there are still plenty of terrible types of inheritance that people pass on to their children and to their grandchildren. The other day I read an account of a young man that didn't particularly get along with his grandmother. He thought that she was a nasty woman for a variety of reasons. And when she passed, she left him an inheritance of some of her favorite cookbooks and her favorite bird. Well, he was in his early 20s at the time. He had takeout almost every night, so he chucked the cookbooks immediately. And now he's left with this bird. But this isn't just any bird. This is an African gray parrot. And if you know anything about African gray parrots, you know that some of these parrots speak and some of them don't. Some of them develop habits that can be absolutely adorable or habits that are not so adorable. And African gray parrots have an average lifespan of about 50 years. And so this young man was now in it for the long haul. Well, the first couple days with the parrot didn't go so bad. They were fairly benign. The bird was scared, adjusting to its new environment. He would shriek loudly every morning when the sun came up, even though there was a blanket over the cage. The bird flipped out whenever the doorbell rang. And things from there started to get a little bit weird. One night after getting his usual takeout for dinner, the bird sat down, or the man sat down in the living room across from the bird, and just as he opened up his meal, the bird leaned to the edge of his cage, and with his beady yellow eyes, he stared at him, and he cocked his head, and he said, watching you. <laughs> That's pretty creepy. I mean, this guy didn't even know the bird could talk, and his first words were, watching you. Later that night, he went to put the blanket over the cage, and the bird said to him, make sure to lock up. The next morning, he woke to the shrieking and what would be the equivalent of this parrot yelling repeatedly, watching you, watching you, watching you, and as he rushed downstairs and ripped the blanket off the cage to see what was going on, the bird said, still watching you. And then it got really creepy, as the bird said, hurt you soon. 
This was a bad inheritance. An inheritance out of a horror movie. You know, a great inheritance can be a great blessing. A bad inheritance can be a tremendous burden. And this was the gift that just kept on giving in all the wrong ways. Today, we continue our series that we're calling Break the Cycle from the book of Judges. We're just early into this book of Judges. At one point in life or another, I imagine that each and every one of you have felt trapped in a cycle or a habit or a pattern of behavior that has not been healthy. Whether that is in your relationships with other people, whether that is in the habits and patterns with regard to your work, whether that's sinful habits in your own mind or in your private life, those things that you don't want anybody else to know. No matter what it is for you, if you've experienced being stuck in that type of cycle, you know that it can lead to some pretty devastating practical and spiritual consequences. Last week, we used the metaphor of being stuck in the roundabout, the traffic circle, and some people just seemingly get stuck in circle again and again and again, and we laughed and chuckled at that, and yet, for some of us, that example hits very close to home, stuck in the cycle of sin, having the hardest time getting out. And if we used that roundabout to describe our perspective of what it feels like to be stuck in the cycle of sin... This morning, I want to encourage you to look at this from another perspective, from God's perspective. If last week we saw the cycle of sin as us being trapped in the roundabout, this morning we're going to look at the cycle of sin from 500 feet above the roundabout, looking down at the dynamics that God sees in his people as they continue in this type of rebellion against him. And so I want you to turn with me to the book of Judges if you have not yet already. Judges chapter 2 is found on page 201 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And you're going to want to turn with me to chapter 2, verse 6. Today we're going to read one chapter of Scripture. And as I told you last week, it can be hard sometimes to to pay attention for the reading of a whole chapter of the Bible out loud. Um, But let me encourage you in this. I promise you that if you stick it out, and, and mentally engage from start to finish as the scripture is read out loud, by the middle of this series, all of a sudden a chapter of the Bible reading out loud won't feel so long to you anymore. You'll actually have developed a stamina, even for names that you can't pronounce and some geography you don't understand. So let me set the stage before I read. Remember, God's people Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They went through the wilderness. They are now in the promised land that God had promised to them for centuries. Joshua was their leader, and he led them to take hold of the land. He has now died. And the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, are taking a hold of their inheritance. Each tribe, a given allotment of land. And to take hold of it, they need to conquer the people of the land and take possession of it. And that's where we pick up the story. Joshua chapter 2, starting at verse 6, says this. It says, excuse me, Judges chapter 2, verse 6 says this. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Haris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from whom, from other gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they were whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of all their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach it to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon and Mount baal Haram. As far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. So here, 
we see the cycle of sin from God's perspective. And as we do, immediately we see some things that are pretty significant and pretty scary. The first thing we see is that the cycle of sin, this description of sin that we have in our lives that you might have personally is not confined just to you. It actually spreads throughout an entire nation. The sins of a couple of people spread among the nations. But not just among the nation. It is not contained to that group alone. This cycle of sin actually extends from generation to generation. Now that's a scary thought. That the patterns of sin in my life could be passed on to my children. That's the worst type of inheritance. Every parent wants the best for their kids. And the thought that my children will reap negative consequences for my actions is sobering, but yet exactly what this text points to in certain ways. And so the question becomes then, not only how do we avoid the cycle of sin, but how do we avoid passing it down (laughs) to the generation that comes after us? And here we can make some observations. We see first in this text, in verses 6 through 10, that the cycle of generational sin begins with a failure to pass down a knowledge of God. If you look with me at verse 7, it says that all of the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. We had a nation of people that were dialed in to who God was and what God was doing, and they pursued him. But just a couple of verses later, after Joshua and those elders died, it says in verse 10, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so one generation follows him faithfully. The next generation doesn't know him at all. Here's where the danger lies. There was a failure to pass down what they knew of God and what they knew of his works. And the text doesn't give us the precise mechanics of how they failed, but just very simply that they did. But it seems fairly plain, doesn't it? You might remember some, some, a couple of generations before this, Deuteronomy chapter 11, we see that the people of Israel are given the law by God, and God prompts them to the importance of knowing him and his works and his ways. And he says this to them. He says in Deuteronomy eleven eighteen through 21, he says, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home and when you Walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. As many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Well, now they are in the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers. But they have not followed those words of God to teach one generation to another. And as active 
as faithful a group of parents that existed during the time of Joshua. They failed in one of the most basic things, to pass on the personal knowledge of God and his works to children. And the result is that this next generation enters into a cycle of sin that seems not that bad for the previous generation, but now starts to get really bad for the next generation. You know, this problem has not gone away. (laughs) And many parents today unknowingly place their children in the same situation. They know God personally. They've experienced the wonders of salvation in Jesus Christ, that they can be forgiven, that they can have new and eternal hope, that their life is forever changed. They've experienced the work of God in salvation and tremendous works of God after salvation. And yet, for whatever reason, passing down a knowledge of him doesn't seem so easy. Now, as a pastor who has observed family patterns and dynamics just along these lines, both successes and failures, growth and stifling, let me make a couple of pastoral observations for you with regard to this dynamic. I think as pastors, we often see that the biggest success in passing down a knowledge of God from one generation to the next comes when parents regularly talk with their children about their own pursuit of God. How they've experienced God work, how they have struggled to be obedient themselves, and how they have experienced great joy in following the Lord. And then, and then the kids actually see how that plays out in their life. It's one thing for a parent to say to a child, you go do that. But it's another thing for a parent to say to a child, watch me as we do this, and you do likewise. I think of the story of the little boy named Willie, whose parents were not actively following the Lord, but they had a spiritual sensitivity about them that they wanted for their son. So they were respectable people, and they taught him the Lord's Prayer. And they taught him the prayer, now I lay me down to sleep. And they taught him the, the most important tagline, God bless Papa and Mama and Willie and make me a good little boy. And one evening as he finished his prayer, Willie said to his mother, do you pray, Mama? No, darling, she said. Does Daddy pray? Well, I've never heard him pray. Well, then why do you make me pray? Well, that you may be good. Don't you want to be good? The mother said. Oh, yes, I want to be good. Then why don't you and daddy pray? (laughs) Well, I guess we've just gotten out of the spirit, the mother said. To which the boy replied, well, mama, don't you think that you and dad are expecting too much of a little fellow like me? Am I supposed to do all the praying for our family? Seems like you and Papa might help me out at least a little bit. And that was an aha moment for the parents. It doesn't make any sense to pass something on to the children if you're not engaged in it yourself. You get the point. It's one thing to say, do this. It's another thing to show them how to do it. 
Here's another observation that I've seen with some regularity, and that is that some families like the idea of their children inheriting their faith, but they don't pass that faith on to them intentionally. I hear things with some regularity like, I don't want to impose my faith on my children. I want them to make up their own mind. This, of course, assumes that they're trying to promote a morally neutral environment in which their kids can decide from a neutral position one way or the other. But there's a lot of problems with this view and with this practice. First, if you truly believe, if you truly believe that your relationship with God has changed your life, it's changed your eternal destiny, that Jesus is the most valuable and your salvation is the most valuable thing, that the gospel is good, good news for lost people of which you were one, (laughs) then it doesn't make any sense that you wouldn't lead your children to understand their reality in the same way. After all, I mean, you believe that they'll be better off if they have an education, and so you make them go to school. You believe that they'll be better off if they eat well, and so you make them eat their vegetables. You believe that they'll be better off if they're healthy, and so even though they don't want to go to the doctor or the dentist, you make them go to the doctor and to the dentist. All of these things are impositions on their desires, (laughs) But when it comes to the most important thing, a future with God that is free from a destructive cycle of sin, then is the time that you don't want to impose? Friends, that just doesn't make any sense. Here's another observation. It seems to me that in our time, and this is getting harder, that There are priorities in life of other activities that are considered to be part of normal life. But spiritual activities, whether that's going to church, going to Sunday school, going to youth group, these things are diminished as something less than normal. This is what I mean. This is, so, this is so incredibly hard in our time because the expectations on our children are ever-growing. If your kids are in sports, they need to be in sports almost every day. Otherwise, they can't be in sports. If they're in band, if they're in drama, these things are growing in a similar type of fashion. And, and Christians aren't used to this, historically speaking. There used to be sacred times and days set aside. Sundays used to be totally off-limits. Well, it's not off-limits anymore. Wednesday nights used to be totally off-limits. Well, that's not off-limits anymore. And, and, and so we want to say, oh, the culture is going to hell. Oh, I don't know what to do. Oh, I, I, I blame the rec directors for scheduling things on Sunday. I blame the coaches for having practice on Wednesday night. I blame, 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 blame. But... You can't expect some of these folks who aren't Christians, who don't share a same value for God, to set aside and guard space for you to train your kids in the faith. (laughs) You can't expect that. The responsibility 
rests with you. And I know it's getting harder. And I, I love sports. I played a lot of different sports. Uh, I love watching sports. I want my kids to be able to play sports. And yet, and yet, we are coming to a time where Christians are going to have to start making some very hard decisions about do I want my kids to inherit a really good jump shot or do I want them to inherit something else? Think about it with me for a minute. Think about the long view. What are you really communicating to them if you make them go to school, you make them go to practice, you make them eat your vegetables, you make them go to the doctor, but you don't make them go to youth group, to Sunday school, or to church? What you're saying is, without even saying it, there are a lot of things in your life that are normal and of great importance that you have to do. But the things of God are add-ons to normal life. James Dobson once wrote, I think prophetically, he said, we are so busy giving our children what we never had that sometimes we forget to give them what we did have. Now, here's a brief word to those of you who don't have children or for those of you who have grown children out of the house. And that word is just very practically, we need you. (laughs) We need your help in this. Because raising kids, passing on the faith to the next generation is a community project. Yes, the responsibility lies with the parents. But part of the great thing about a local church is a variety of skills, gifts, abilities, experiences, perspectives to help raise people in a fear and knowledge of the Lord. We need you. And so it's wonderful to see um, couples in their 20s who don't have kids yet who serve in Awana because they say, even though these aren't my kids, I want to invest in the next generation. To see retired folks whose grandkids live in other parts of the country to say, I can't have the opportunity to invest in my own grandkids the same way I want to, but I have a whole boatload of surrogate grandchildren at Old North Church that I can pass down to. To see couples in their 40s and 50s who never had kids, but for them to recognize that this is part of our calling in passing on an inheritance. What kind of inheritance will you leave your children? How do we break the cycle of sin from generation to generation? Well, the answer is that we actively parent them in the faith. Because the contrast is pretty striking. And that's where we see next in this text. What happens when the cycle is passed down from generation to generation? Or you don't succeed in passing down the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's work to your children? Well, we see that in verses 11 through 15. We see that turning away from God for this next generation results in the pursuit of the gods of the culture around them. And that should be no surprise. We see that all the time, don't we? Look with me at verse 11. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is that next generation. They served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
Just a quick reminder of how awesome God is in there. And they went after the other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. What happens when you don't pass it on? Well, we see that they served other gods. Their parents served God. They decided to serve other gods. The gods of the culture in which they live. The Baals, the Ashtoreth. These were the false gods that the Canaanites worshipped. Now, this doesn't often reflect itself today in terms of actually worshipping Buddha or Allah or any of the other false gods of our time, though it could, but it actually looks like becoming more integrated into the culture around you to the point where you value and even practically worship the exact same things as a growing non-Christian culture. We saw how in the previous chapter, how they started to mix the commands of God with their own perception of reality. And it seemed innocent enough at the time, but that partial obedience led them down this dangerous path. And in essence, these people, this next generation, were just trying to fit in. Nothing wrong with that, right? They just wanted to fit in. They adopted the posture of their culture. They became like the people around them. And yet... This was angering to the Lord. And it just highlights the fact that there are no morally neutral pockets in our society. You're either following the Lord or you aren't. You're either pursuing him or you're not. You're either for him or you're against him. And I know on this for him side, there's, there's a wide range of growth and affections and faithfulness that happen. That's what God does in us. He changes us and grows us. But there's no middle ground. And we see that for these people. And the result is that God becomes angry with them and he does not allow them to succeed. He begins to test them with the goal of bringing them back. Thirdly, we see that God provides a way out for them, but they reject it. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. But they didn't listen to their judges. And they hoard after the other gods and bowed down to them. Now, these judges that we're talking about are not judges like you think of today. They're not like a magistrate, Gacy, who's part of our church, or Judge Washam, who's part of our church, or, or some of the others that serve in the legal system in this way. They don't just simply mediate the law, <laughs> though that is part of their function. A greater part of their function is that they were military leaders. God raised up specific, wise people to lead in military battle against those who were plundering the Israelites. These judges, as we will see as the book goes on, are both a blessing and a curse because for them as well, they were not as faithful as they should have been. But God uses them to show the works of his hands because they had not been taught the works of his hands. And so they have a physical plight and a spiritual plight. And their physical plight is one in which God rescues them from, showing his power, showing his might, showing his victorious nature, all with the desire to bring them and meet their spiritual plight. And yet, despite seeing the wonderful works of his hands, the second the judge dies, they move back, to their old and stubborn ways. But God, look at verse 18. Here's the hope for the Israelites and the hope for you and for me, that God continues to give them second chances. 
He says in the second half of the verse, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. This is so consistent with the nature of God. His mercy is what moved him to raise up another judge, to give repeated chances, to say, if it was me, I would have said, fine, you want that way, you can have it. But God isn't like that. He gives them second chance and third chance and fourth chance, and he gives you second chance and third chance and fourth chance. And if you feel like you're stuck in the cycle of sin, know that God is giving you another chance to get out. This is the same God that gave Moses, who murdered someone, a second chance. It's the same God who gave King David, who murdered someone and was an adulterer, a second chance. This is the same God who gave Jonah a second chance, who gave Peter, who denied Jesus, a second chance. It's the same God who gives his people chance after chance after chance because of his mercy. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Titus 3, 4 through 6 says, But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The good news of God that is shown to us in the gospel is that you don't have to enter the cycle of sin. But if you do, God himself provides you a way out, a chance again and again and again. He is most gracious and merciful. You know, a great inheritance can be a great blessing. And a bad inheritance can be a tremendous burden. What kind of inheritance will your children receive? How will you set your kids up for after you are gone? begins with giving your life to God through faith in Jesus and taking his gifts in exchange for you following him. It continues with a recognition that the worship of God is something that requires complete allegiance and can't be mixed in with other priorities. It becomes the priority. It continues as we sin and struggle in sin but that we don't pass down the cycle of sin. We take care not to do that because we raise up the next generation to know him, to know of his works, and to show him, to show them who God is. And that brings us to the main idea of this passage, and it's very simply a question. What kind of inheritance will your children have? Because here's the thing. Regardless of who your parents are, you yourself can have an inheritance from God an inheritance that is worth infinitely more than any amount of money. Likewise, even though you thought maybe you wouldn't be giving your children a great inheritance, you can set them up to receive an inheritance. You won't be giving it to them. 
God himself will be giving it to them, but you can bring them right to the edge of receiving this most valuable inheritance. This is the way it's described. Matthew 25, Jesus tells those who are faithful to the king, come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's a good inheritance. Ephesians 1.18, Paul tells us that when we have had the eyes of our hearts opened or enlightened to faith in Jesus, that we receive the riches of his glorious inheritance. That is a good inheritance. What kind of inheritance will your children receive? There once were some parents They were middle-class folks. They worked hard. They provided for their family. And when they died, they had something to pass on to their kids. And it helped with college funds for the grandkids or a down payment on a house. Or to fix some things on the property. But more importantly than that, they taught their kids about spiritual hope. About comfort in the Lord about what an ongoing relationship looks like. There once were some parents who were very wealthy and they passed along about four million dollars to each of their to their children, one million apiece. But they taught them that dependence in life doesn't come from money. <laughs> that the things that provide the greatest hope and greatest joy are things that cannot be purchased, that actually a generous disposition with physical resources was helpful, and they showed them the dangers of having such wealth, and those kids received a great inheritance. There once was a single mother who was abandoned by her husband before the baby was even born. She worked hard her whole life. She had almost nothing to leave to the daughter that she left behind. But she taught that daughter some things that were much more important than money. She taught her that joy in life doesn't come from the things that you have. She taught her a vision for the future, (laughs) the temporary future and the eternal future. She taught her that faith in Christ was infinitely more valuable than anything else she could receive. And as that daughter received almost no physical inheritance, she remembered her mother praying for her in the morning and with her in the morning and reading her Bible to her at night. And she thought to herself, I am the richest girl in the world. What kind of inheritance will your children receive? Let's pray. Father, it should not feel so complicated to pass on what we know of you to our children, and yet so often it does. So often either because of our own inadequacies in communication our own sin that shames us into being silent with our kids, 
the pressures and desires for other types of activity, whatever the temptation or the stress might be, God, we pray that you would help us (laughs) to be faithful in showing you to our kids and to the kids of this community. God, that we would not be faithful to you in our life, but then unfaithful to you in the inheritance that we leave. That our children would come to know you and love you. And that we know that when we, we teach them of you and your works and your ways, that you are the one who ultimately gives eternal inheritance. But we can trust you for that. That as valuable as our kids are to you, that they're infinitely more valuable to you than they are to us. And so we pray that you would help us in this. God, we know that it will take courage. It'll take courage as a culture moves further away from having space and time to train children in this way. Give us that courage. Help us see the long view, we pray. For the sake of our children and for the sake of your glory. Amen.